I think it's safe to say that we all typically admire someone who would be described as a man or a, a woman with a strong faith. Uh, maybe they are very active in their work. They're very happy and content in their lives. We usually take note of that. Rightfully so, God tells us to take note of people like that. Maybe when we, we think of a person like that, we, we try to place words to describe that person. And maybe a word that we don't think about a whole lot, but would be well for us to consider more, would be that they are a very zealous person. Now sometimes that idea of being zealous has been looked at in a negative context, but the Bible uses it in a very, uh, a very positive way. Um, in many instances when it uses to describe people who are followers of God. Now there are those who in life have, have been zealous for things that were of the wrong, uh, wrong persuasion. If you look over to Galatians chapter 1 for a moment. Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14 we're going to realize that Paul was very zealous in his life. But not always zealous on the right sorts of things. In Galatians 1 starting in verse 13 he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father, of my fathers, excuse me. He would go on to say in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6, still talking about this, uh, this former life that he lived. Uh, and in Philippians 6, he's talking about his zeal. He says, concerning zeal persecuting the church. The level of which he persecuted God's people spoke many words about the zealous behavior and the zealous attitude that Paul had. But it was later on in his, in his life that he became zealous for the work that God had called him to do. In Philippians 3, down a few verses to verse 12, he says, "...not that I have already attained..." Or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was very zealous in his service for Christ. And in fact, if we want to go back to Galatians again one more time, in chapter 2 and verse 20, he would describe himself as being crucified with Christ, saying, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul was a very, very zealous person. But the range of, of zeal... Uh, among Christians oftentimes varies widely. It isn't all uh, described like Paul. Now there are those who are described with a great sort of zeal. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read about some of these people. The Thessalonians were described similarly as Paul was described. Paul, when he wrote a letter to them, wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 2 and 3 saying, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, he used similar words again in verses 3 and 4 of the first chapter, saying, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, 
because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. The, the, the Christians at Corinth, or excuse me, at Thessalonica, the Christians there were described as Christians who were very, very zealous for their work. I would imagine if we, if we were able to get a snapshot of what life looked like with the Christians at Thessalonica, we would see that regularly they made a, a habit of the, to, to be together with the saints, to be gathered together to praise God and to lift one another up and to study from His Word together. And I would imagine that there was many sacrifices made by the members of that church. Sacrifices in their giving, I'm sure, but sacrifices in the lives that they lived uh, to be able to be pleasing to God, to be able to put away things that, that they might have one time have, had had a desire for, but now know, uh, knew as they came to God that they, they no longer could partake in those things. I imagine the, the Christians at Thessalonica were very diligent in their Bible study. And they would look to God's Word for guidance and look to it often. And I imagine the Christians at Thessalonica probably were filling their time with teaching others and inviting others to the Lord and to be a part of His kingdom. This is a very zealous sort of description that we read in in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But we have other descriptions that are given to us throughout the Bible. One we've talked about quite a bit lately lately, over in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, we have described to his church, such as the church in Sardis, who was described as a, uh, a church with a name that they were alive, but they were dead. And then a church of the Laodiceans in verses 14 through 22. And in that passage, in verse 15 and 16, Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. They were, they were a church described as lukewarm. They weren't... They weren't burning with zeal the way that, that the, the Thessalonians uh, seem to have, have been. They weren't described with the same manner, but rather that they, that they were just kind of middle of the road, uh, so to speak. Maybe they, had, maybe they were attending services, but maybe they did so sporadically. Maybe they would make time for that here and there when it was convenient. And maybe they made sacrifices, but when things really were called upon them to put hard and, and do the hard things, they... They chose the easier path. They chose the path of the world. Again, these are, these are just my personal reflections, and, and I, I ask you not to hold to them uh, wholeheartedly, but as I read about these churches, I just wonder, what was life like uh, for them to be described this way? Did they, did they neglect the opportunities that were made for them to study with one another, for them to, st- to come together to, to worship God, but also to, to set together and read from His Word? What kind of personal work was going on in the lives of these Christians? So we have seen a church from, from Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica that was described as a church that was, that was zealous. We have seen the church at Laodicea that was described as a church that was kind of lukewarm. But over in 2 Timothy, we find that there will also be those who are described, if, you, if we stay with our, with our temperature uh, descriptions they would be ice cold. Second Timothy chapter four, in verse ten, we read about Demas. It says Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. There are those who will be who who will fall to to apathy. They will they will shrink away from God. And will turn back to the world. 
not just sporadically visiting the, the assembling together of the church, but quitting the services altogether. Coveting their time and their money and their lifestyles. The things that they deem are theirs are the things that they will put their interest in and they won't make sacrifices to God. Their Bibles lay at home collecting dust or, or maybe at best stay in the back seat of the car where they might get pulled out occasionally if it, if it, uh, on their way into a service. They are people that seem to be ashamed of the church, ashamed of the gospel of Christ. These are the different types of descriptions that we find within the New Testament of what God sees in His people. And certainly one of these is painted as a picture we would much rather model ourselves after, and that is that of that burning zeal. And so maybe it causes, causes us to pause and think, how can I be more like that church in Thessalonica? If you haven't noticed, I'm having a really hard time with that word today. Thessalonica. I'm not even going to try to say it again. So I want to be more like the church there. I want to be more like a church that is described with zeal and, and brings glory and honor to the Word of God and to His name. But how do I do that? What does it take for me to have a burning zeal? Well, I think if we'll turn over to the book of Colossians, we will find some answers to that question in the prayer that we find Paul praying for the Colossians. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul has some words that are very interesting to me, and they highlight three things that I believe will contribute to increasing our, our desire, increasing our fervor, increasing our zeal for the Lord. Let's note there in verses 9 and 10, Paul says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, and that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I believe that these three things mentioned by Paul here are, will go a long ways in helping us to grow in our zeal for the Lord. The first thing that Paul points out is that of, of the three essentials of zeal comes knowledge. Knowledge of a subject always, always increases our, our interest in that subject. Uh, whether, whether, that be, <clears throat> whether that be a hobby or, or maybe a sport of some sort, the more we know about it, the more interest we're going to have in it. Um, I have some friends who, who are very avid bird watchers. And I think they call it birding. I think is the way that's maybe the technical description of that. Um, they have a great interest in that. I don't share their interest in that, partly in due to the fact that I have a very little, uh, very limited knowledge on birds. As these birds fly by, they're pointing out, oh, this is this, is this sort of finch, and that's a, a, some sort of starling, and, and I can spot a robin, and I can spot a cardinal, and if it bangs its head against a tree, I know it's a woodpecker, but beyond that, I'm a little bit... Um, ignorant uh, as to the different types of birds. And so I don't have the same interest that they have in that. The same is true when it comes to God's Word. The more knowledge we have in it, the more of, uh, of an interest it will bring to our lives. One thing that we see is that as, as our knowledge of God's will and His Word increases, there will be an increase in the fruit that we bear. In Colossians chapter 1, where we've just read, um, in verse 5, 
Paul says to them, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. He's talking about the word that they have heard, the, the word of Jesus' life and his actions and that which he did, that, that message of hope that brings salvation. And he tells them in verse 6, that word has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. The Colossians were bearing fruit in response to their understanding of God's grace as it was revealed to them in the gospel. The more that they grew in that, and the more that they, that they learned about that, and the more fruit that they were able to bear, and the more interest that they had in, in serving God. If we'll flip back uh, to the book of Psalms for a moment. In Psalm chapter 119, I'm going to go ahead and give you a hint. We're going to be in Psalm 119 quite a bit this afternoon. So if you want to just take a ribbon uh, or your, uh, your finger or something and put it there to keep your place, because we'll be flipping back and forth to Psalms uh, quite a bit this afternoon. In verse 111, Psalm 119, 111, we read the psalmist describe how exciting he, he, it was for him to learn and to know the will of God. He says, Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever. For they are the rejoicing of my heart. In 162, he says, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. In 164, seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous judgments. The psalmist talks about the great joy and excitement from the word of God as if it is a great treasure. Now I imagine if we, if we decided we were going to go out and plant a garden. Richard planted a, a good garden this year. And as we were tilling that garden up, if we hit something and and it kind of turned over a, a box, and we thought, what's that? And we popped the seal on that, and we found a bunch of gold. Well, I would, I would be calling finder's fee because I was tilling. I, that, that's, that's part of mine, Richard. You've got to share that with me. But we'd be excited about that. We'd be excited to find that, that, that treasure that was hidden in the field. The psalmist reads the Word of God as if it is a great treasure, finds great excitement in the revelation of God's will for mankind. But this also points to the fact that knowledge requires diligence to obtain. Over in Hebrews chapter 5, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12, we read there for the word of God, excuse me, that's chapter 4. Uh, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have, not, you have come to need milk and not solid food. Here we read about those who who had been negligent in their study of God's Word. We're needing to be taught all over again the first fruits, the, the, the essentials. Weren't able to move very far into the Word of God. Very similar to what we've learned about with the, the Christians at Corinth who had become carnal over their fighting. These, these people that were receiving this letter from the Hebrew author had not, had, were not able to receive a, the more deeper things of, of God's Word, but once again having to go over these first fruits and learn them again. In fact, to grow, we must, we must be like what 1 Peter describes. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Another, another verse that we read this morning in our, in our Bible class. It says, but there were, <clears throat> excuse me. it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. Now, it seems for a minute that that's, 
This might be contradicting what, what the Hebrew writer was saying. The Hebrew writer said, you, you, need, the pure, you need, need milk. And Peter was saying, you need to long for milk. And we talked about this some in class, that the, 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 the people of God are, are to be like babes in Christ. They are to be like those who, whose life depends upon this, this word of God, upon the pure milk, that long for it, that cry for it, that search for it that desire it and want it. We must be diligent in striving to obtain this knowledge of, of God's will so that we might grow therein. And the psalmist again in, verse, in, in Psalm 119 gives, provides a great example of this. Verses 15 and 16, the psalmist says, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes and I will not forget your word. In verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. <clears throat> knowledge. Knowledge leads to a greater understanding and a greater interest and a greater zeal for the Christian. The same way that it does with any other venture in our lives. The more we know about something, the more we are able to, to place a desire in doing that. But that's not where Paul stops. He doesn't just pray that they would have knowledge. Because he understood that there was more that was desirable for the, for the uh, Christians at, at Colossae to be engaged in. He went on to say that he would desire that they walk worthy of the Lord. And so to knowledge, we must also add to our, to, to, uh, our zeal participation. Participation increases interest. And this is true again in many things. And, and maybe you, you would think of, of sporting events. Uh, certainly be some place where this would be very obvious. Um, there are those people that I've met in my life who are absolute die-hard sports fans. You, uh, wh- whatever their team is, uh, whatever team that they, that they choose to, to root on, they, they, they love to talk about them. They love to, to show off their memorabilia. They love to tell you the memories that they have made. Uh, watching those sporting events, and they, you think there is no one that loves this more than this person until you meet the players of those teams, the people that rain or shine are going to be on the field. Yeah, many, many of, the, uh, of the diehard fans, even in the rain, they're going to they're gonna show up. But when things get really inconvenient, well, it's okay because it's on TV. I'll, just, I'll stay at home. But you have those, those men, who have, uh, men and women who have dedicated their lives to playing these sports, and, and they, get a, they have just a, a different sense of, of zeal for that game than those who just watch. And I can tell you firsthand that this makes a difference in, in your interest in something. Because in fifth grade, I played, I played Civitan basketball for the Mavericks. And I didn't get a lot of participation. I got to sit on the bench a whole lot. That's the, the burning question people ask me when they first meet me. Man. You're awfully tall. You must have played basketball. Yes, one year, fifth grade. 
And my highlight of that season was the one goal that I made, not during a game, but during practice. I didn't do anything during the during game. I never made a single, uh, single goal. So I was able to sit and watch a lot of this time and, and to watch my, my friends and, and, and other teammates play. And at the end of the season, when mom said, Kyle, next year, what do you want to do? I said, I sure don't want to play basketball again. I want to go back to baseball. I want to go back to something I know what I'm doing. I'm at least a little bit good at. Participation increases an interest in something. Lack of participation does the opposite. It decreases our interest in things. And again, there is a correlation between our participation and our zeal in God's work. In John chapter 17, uh, verse 13, Jesus spoke to the... uh, Jesus was speaking when he said, the words that I speak are in the world so that you might have joy. The things that were recorded of Jesus saying, the things that he said, and even the actions that he did were done so so that we might have joy in our life. And I think that James, I think that he might have been thinking about that. Whenever he wrote James chapter 1 and verse 25, But he who looks in the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. I wonder if he wasn't thinking back to Jesus' words, remembering that the things that he spoke were spoken in the world to bring joy to those that, that, that will listen to him, those that will follow him. And James was saying, you know what? For the ones that are doers, not just hearers of those, of those words, but doers of those words, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, that doesn't mean that, that if they do those things, that everything's just going to be rosy for them, everything's going to be wonderful for those people, but they will be blessed. They will be truly happy for those who follow God because true happiness comes to those who walks in the way of the Lord. Again, back over in Psalm 119, this time verses 1 and 2. Here the psalmist writes, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord, and blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with the whole heart. Again, this idea of blessing, of of a true happiness, is found in those who walk in the way of the Lord, who are participants in God's Word. And certainly, there is a happier conscience for one who is, is walking pleasing to the Lord and walking worthy of their calling. There's a satisfaction of knowing that you are doer that you are a doer of the word and not just a hearer. James chapter one verses twenty four through twenty seven describes that person one who who hears the word of God uh, but does not do it. It's like one who looks into a mirror and then as soon as he turns away he he has forgotten uh, who he is. That describes a person who is who is lost, a person who is is unsure of their lives. There's no true happiness in not knowing. Uh, who you are, not knowing uh, <clears throat> the direction your life is taking. But what we see is those who are followers of God, those who are just not just hearing the word but are doing the word, are those who have a true blessing. And Jesus talked about these people in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. He talked about those who would build their house on the rock. I know all of these young kids up front, they remember the song that we sing about the, the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the rains fell and the floods came and the house stood firm. But the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the same rains and the floods fell, but the house on the sand went splat. 
Jesus describes that foolish man as one who hears the word of God but never does anything with it, never participates within it, never acts on it. The labor that we do for the Lord, as 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 tells us, is a labor that will not be in vain. It's a labor that will not, uh, we, we will not look back one day and say, what was the point of that? It's a labor that brings true happiness to the heart of those who follow and love God. But that leads Paul to the third part of his prayer. And this is the part that I believe is most oftentimes misunderstood and misapplied within the body of Christ today. And that is in verse 10, that, they would, that he prays for bearing fruit. He prays that the Colossians would be successful. And success certainly leads to a higher interest in the Lord's work and to a greater zeal for what we're doing. You know, if we engage in activities without success, we can become discouraged. One, one goal all year long. I didn't want to play basketball anymore. I was done. The more we walk and, and fail, the harder it is to, to get back up and to, to do the same thing again. But what is success in God's eyes? I think too often today we view it as what is success in our eyes? What looks like success to us? And I think the answer to that question most times is when we see someone converted. We see some, uh, somebody baptized into Christ and we see wet bodies, that's success. That is what we're striving for. And, and to an extent, I want to say that I agree with that. But I'm afraid that that view is a little bit too narrow. We, we need to open our field of, of view just a little bit because there are so many other things that provide success in this life that encourage us and push us forward to be more zealous to the, work of, uh, to the will of God. One thing that I like to think about that can be very successful is in our Bible study. Maybe we don't study as much as we, we wish we had in the past. We decide, I'm going to start studying some more. I'm going to, I'm going to set aside some more time to look into God's Word. Or maybe there's that verse that we've always struggled with, but we, we have studied and, and, and prayed about and, and maybe even talked and got some and, and advice from other people um, and finally learned the meaning of that passage that we've been struggling with. Brothers and sisters, that's success. I don't, we, we don't need to, to take away from things because we think, well, that's too small to count as success. As we grow more in the knowledge of God, in the knowledge of His Word. That's success. And yes, in our personal work, if someone, uh, through maybe the teaching that, that, that we have done with them, or just someone close to us, or someone that, that is, obeys the Word, obeys God and becomes a Christian, yes, that's success. But we must not let those sorts of things overshadow the, the, the smaller things that can sometimes be so empowering to the Christian. I want you to think about it like this. Turn over to 3 John with me for a moment. In 3 John, we get an idea of what John viewed as success. And I'm not sure that we would always view it this way in our days today. 
In 3 John verse 3 and 4, John says, I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Whenever we see those around us edified, when we see our brothers and sisters built up, when we are gathered together here on, on Sundays and Wednesdays and we see one another growing closer to God and growing closer together and we see God being proclaimed, His glory being shown to, to, to one another, brothers and sisters, that's success. And don't you ever let Satan put that thought into your mind that says, no, we only have success when people are, are coming to God. We only have success when we're baptizing people into Christ. Because success is a huge part in being more zealous. And for the Christian that recognizes that even in the small things of their life, they have victories. They have times where they win. Times where they are doing things that are pleasing to God. Times that they are growing. Times that they are successful. That encourages us. That builds us up. That helps us to be more zealous for the Lord. So this afternoon, maybe you, you have very little interest in the past in the Lord's work. Or maybe you have had interest, but you have lost that interest. Well, then we can work backwards from the things we just talked about. It's likely due to the fact that you have not been experiencing success. Or maybe you have, but you've not been viewing it as what it truly is. You've been looking at that at that narrow focus and you need to look at a more broad view of the victories that we can win each and every day in Christ. Maybe you've not been participating in the services, participating in the work that is going on, participating in God's will. Or maybe you lack the knowledge that comes through studying His Word diligently. For those who are willing to maintain an interest in the Lord's work, Paul shares two more thoughts. The first one is that we will not be alone in our effort. In Philippians chapter 2, he says the same thing in Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, he says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We're not alone. We're not doing this, these things all by ourselves. We're not doing it in some far corner of the universe on a, a third rock from the sun that is the only one inhabited. No. We are doing these things with the presence and power of God who works within us both to His will and to His pleasure. We need to remember that. And when we remember that, we need to remember Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12 which tells us we have something to be very thankful for. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has qualified us to receive great rewards. How are we showing our gratitude? I hope that it has been shown by maintaining a burning zeal to do His work and to be found pleasing to Him. But if that is not the case, if you, if you have not been walking in such a manner, but know that you need to turn from that and you need now to see even more that you need to be more pleasing to Him, 
through, through growing closer to Him in the knowledge of His will, through participating with other like saints as they gather together to serve Him and go out into the world to be lights to this world as lost, to succeed. We want to help with that. I want to help with that. Maybe in doing so and in, in, in thinking about these things, you realize that maybe it needs to begin with salvation. In just a moment, we're going to sing the song of invitation. That invitation is not our invitation uh, to you. It is God's invitation, open 24-7, not just at the end of each one of these sermons, not just at the end or the closing of a worship period, but a time that is open to us until that day when the Lord returns, until it will be too late, where God is saying He is welcoming you into His kingdom, into His fold. If only we would obey if only we would follow him. If there's anything we can do to help you with that this afternoon, I'd please encourage you to come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.